This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Linda Sievertson, and this show is crazy special to me today because I'm about to bring on a musical legend who 26 years ago totally changed my life in the most insane Hollywood way you can imagine. He's a true angel to the thousands of people he's helped one-on-one in recovery and to millions of others through his artistry. You know Mr. Paul Williams as a songwriter, composer, singer, and actor. He's won nearly every award possible many times over, including an Oscar for Evergreen with Barbara Streisand. And his songs have been anthems for generations. We've only just begun, Rainy Days and Mondays, You and Me Against the World, and We Can't Forget the Kids, The Rainbow Connection from The Muppets. Polly's standards have been recorded by Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Ray Charles, David Bowie, Tony Bennett, The Carpenters, Willie Nelson, R.E.M., Diana Ross, The Dixie Chicks. Oh my God, the list is so much longer, but I have to stop. But perhaps most exciting to me about Polly as I get older is his incredible example of a career getting better with age. Two years ago at 74, Paul accepted the Grammy for Album of the Year for his collaboration with Daft Punk. He was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame and on Super Soul Sunday recently with Oprah, talking about his New York Times bestseller, co-authored with Tracy Jackson, an amazing book called Gratitude and Trust. Paul is on the forefront of fighting for digital rights for all writers, which we'll talk about, and composing for a huge movie as we speak. There is no one better to chat with about creativity and bringing through our best work. Speaking of incredible work, my guest host today is one of my favorite people, Jillian Lauren, the New York Times bestselling memoirist and novelist who was a guest of ours here last year and whom I can never get enough of. Jillian is the coolest and married to a famous musician herself, so I can't wait to hear them compare notes. I thank you so much for hanging out with us as Paul, Jillian, and I sit here as always digging deep and going for the light. Welcome. Jillian, I am so happy that you're doing this with me. I know you're scheduled to the minute today and all this week, but I also figured correctly that you couldn't resist Mr. Paul Williams. Did I have you at Paul Williams? <laughs> How quickly did I get back to you? <laughs> I got back to you like five minutes before you even contacted me. Oh my God, I'm I so love excited. It. I'm so, so excited. I've been a, a giant Paul Williams fan since Muppet days, and also I'm trying to impress my husband. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Well, I imagine that since you just got off a summer tour with your boys and your husband, who's a guitarist yes. for Weezer, that you're I totally steeped in this music world right now, right? Yeah, I mean, we are always really steeped in the music world. There's like always music in our house and something that, you know, is just, it's a wonderful life and it's a privilege and I love it and so I'm excited to talk to Paul about it too. Oh, me too. Okay, where's my Polly? Are you there, my friend? I'm right here in the, in the interest of rigorous honesty right off the way. Yes. I mean, if you ever listen to an album called the Muppets Green Album, you can hear Rainbow Connection done by Scott and Weezer. And the only reason I'm here right now beyond the fact that I love Linda as much as I do is because I've got to get some tunes to Scott. I mean, please, you know, never lose an opportunity to advance your career with somebody else's talent. <laughs> <laughs> I can do some this Some things never you. change, Linda. I can get Linda. songs to Scott. 
Oh, my God. Oh, I, I know. Oh, it's so great. And uh, we were actually listening to Rainbow Connection, not the Weezer version, the Kermit version, last night. And Scott and I, oh, we were like, let's just listen to it. You know, we haven't listened to it in a long time. And there were, like, tears in Scott's um, eyes. Those, so those tears are heart payments for a songwriter. That's a pure indication of an open heart, and there's nothing that pleases me more. You know what this is reminding me of? I completely forgot about this until just this second. But, Polly, remember when my first book came out and Lisa Gibbons did a show on the book and you came on and remember what you sang at the end on a piano on stage? What did I do? Did I sing Rainbow? (laughs) You sang Rainbow! (laughs) You know, it's really interesting. My memory is triple sharp. Like afternoon, and it's before noon. Like I'm in Nashville, you know. So, but it's like the throw of the dice. Sometimes I can remember the entire cast of How Green Was My Valley, but I don't know where the hell my car keys are. You oh know? my god! Well, that meant so much to me when you yeah. sang that song. It meant so much to Lisa because Lisa and I both had little boys, and they I were know. really well, yours good was friends. Born in my guest room. Oh my god! We'll talk about that in a second. But that sounds really bad, Polly. We have to explain that. But at any rate, I remember I was like I felt like the luckiest new author in the world. I'm sitting on stage holding Paul Williams' hand, like, you know, because I always say you're my second father, you're my only brother, and you're my lifetime bestie, right? And in fact, I had planned on saving this chat, because I knew I'd haul you out here sometime. I had planned on saving it for when I released my memoir, which Jillian has been amazing about endorsing, and especially since you're in the storyline and all, but I'm still tweaking that sucker, and it's going to be a while, so... I'm so grateful that you're here with us, even though you're exhausted and you're touring right now and in Nashville. So I'm so grateful. I've been on the road since the 12th. I did two days in D.C. for ASCAP. I did two days in New York for ASCAP. I did Nashville, where I spoke at Cumberland Heights, which they were celebrating their 50th anniversary as just the best recovery in all of Tennessee. Then I went and spent three days with my brother. I came back here for ASCAP and all, and I'm off to New York tomorrow. And then I go home on the 29th to my beautiful Mariana, but... When it comes to Linda Sivich, and I am here, there, and everywhere. I am there for you anytime you need me, Linda, anytime. Oh, my God, I love you. Okay, so we're going to get to ASCAP because people are going, what? But I want to go yeah, down memory I lane. About that more too. I want to go down memory lane that. for a minute, but I definitely want to talk about ASCAP in the second part of this little hour. But yeah, I have to hear. You are in charge. You know, you're, this is it. You take it. You know, you are the skipper of this. Okay, let me skip for this because I want to start at the beginning. I want to start down memory lane for a second. It's 1989. I'm newly married. I'm totally unemployed, which my newly married husband was not happy about. I've just had a vision that I own this lucrative dog walking business, which I had no idea was an actual thing. So I'm schlepping dog food at a pet store in Beverly Hills to meet clients, right? On the first day, I'm leaving with my little schedule and my itchy smock, and I'm praying to the gods to meet magical people who will change my life. And it isn't long before you, Polly, (laughs) one of our (laughs) celeb customers at the border of Hollywood, hires me and my husband to move into your mansion to take care of your dogs while you go and sober up for six weeks. And then we just decided to stay for a few years. (laughs) How Hollywood is that You know, it's like, uh, how could I not be attracted to somebody who, you know, when I hear somebody that would pray using the sentence of like, you know, I want to meet somebody magical while I'm working on my lucrative dog walk. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> together. My lucrative dog <laughs> walking business. You, I mean, it just tells you, you know, there's a part of you who you are, Linda, as a human being, forward slash angel, that just does not tether your prayers, you know, with unimaginative reality. You just sort of go there, and what we dwell on, we create, and look at you, you know? Look what you're doing. Look what you've done. Oh, my God. So okay. it sounds like you guys both met at, like, a real pivotal turning point in your lives. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I had done rehab once before for the one, the one who was the one. The two of us made one healthy person, her. And uh, <laughs> she had turned to me and said, you know, like, I love you too much to watch you die. So I'm leaving. I tried to get sober for her. It didn't work. I got drunk again. I was doing a ton of cocaine. And I finally had a full tilt blackout and a psychotic episode in Oklahoma City. I came back and in a blackout, called the doctor and said I needed to go to treatment. He called me back the next day and said, I found a place for you. But I've got two huge huskies and a house, and I go, you know, what am I going to do? I need to find somebody that will take care of my pups. No well, I'm in there looking for my head and heart and a way to live life on life's terms. So when I need something, the big amigo usually sends me the best, and he did with Linda and Mark. And, you know, Jillian, you're so right, because Linda and Mark were so batshit crazy. I mean, he was an actor, right, working, you know, here and there, and I was this out-of-work, you know, person with a vision of walking dogs, and I get this job at the pet store. In comes Polly, and within days, we're living like rock stars, right? We're living at the top of the hill overlooking everything and Polly you paid for everything I remember at one point your manager was like um, $1,700 a month on food and why <laughs> <laughs> yeah but the cocaine usage you dropped you know, from $300 a day so he had to be pleased about that you know, right so and here you have my organic melon cost a lot of know. money it cost me a lot of money to eat that food <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know it did, you know, but, oh, but I remember that in early sobriety, all I wanted was, you know, first of all, all I wanted was that young lady back, you know, I know. because she was, you know, she, you know, alone, me do alone, you know, that, me alone would require a little bit of work that hadn't been done yet, you know, so I just kept thinking if she would just come back, it would just all you be all right, and I'd sit on the, sit on on the, the oh my God, I'd sit on the steps, you know, because you guys were in the guest room, and I was upstairs and all, I'd sit on the steps, and you would sit on the steps with me, and, you know, what I got in therapy out of that friendship, out of uh, our friendship. I cried too, man. You healed me because I had past victimization from a prior relationship I hadn't healed from, and you and I were a couple of roly-polies crying on the stairs. <laughs> yeah. Well, again and again, again and again in my life, I find that, you know, that when I don't get something I want, I get what I need, that no is a gift. Again and again, no is a gift. And so I didn't get that relationship, and what I wound up with was me sitting on the steps talking to somebody, a friend, you know, a friend who I just loved and just poured out my heart to. And, you know, for so many years, my connection was music to the rest of the world, which was mm -hmm. wonderful, and, but it's one step removed. And I think the very first relationship I had when I got sober, when I was all of a sudden was connecting to the world around me, especially the alcoholic community, the recovering community that just opened their arms for me. But the one relationship that I had that was a brand new experience for me was sitting on the steps talking to Linda. And it was like a primary relationship 
I remain the alpha infant in the house, no matter what. <laughs> the alpha infant. <laughs> the alpha everything. infant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, gosh. Oh I feel like that should be our band name or something. The alpha infant. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, yeah. I love you but so Jillian, much. But, Jillian, the work that you have done, the work you've done on yourself, the, you right. know, and the courageous work you've done, you know, and the arc of your work from the beginnings on to adoption and everything is so impressive, and everybody okay. can benefit from it. And you kick out the slats out of any kind of stigma with every time you step up to the microphone. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I don't know if you know this, but my husband also um, is sober, has been sober for like 28 years or something. So, Wow. Yeah, yeah I'm so 26. I, 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 I had like, heard rumors. I'd heard rumors. Yeah. yeah. It's a really big, wonderful nurturing part of our lives, too. I want to talk about Jillian for a second, because all of this 80s woo-woo talk is bringing up the topic of magic and synchronicity and how when you're doing what you really love, you know, we've heard this a million times, but it's so not tried to me that magic happened. And, you know, in my experience, I was just reaching for what I loved. I loved writing and I loved animals. Writing, I didn't feel like I was smart enough. That was going to take time. But animals is where I was led, and that led to Paul, and it led to other clients. It led to my first book and all of that. And Jillian, in an odd way, I'm thinking, as I look back on your story, your love, and correct me if I got this wrong, but I'm thinking your love of performing led you to travel to Brunei, which led to that very edgy adventure in a harem that led to your writing career. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I never thought of it that way, like as that sort of chain of events. But yeah, that's absolutely right. And I would also say further that there was a creative impulse that was underneath all of it. And, you know, and sometimes that creative impulse led me to, you know, what has ultimately been my life's work and writing. And, uh, you know, and sometimes it led me to had a certain like wildness or a shadow side that led me to make some more poor decisions. <laughs> but very Yes. <laughs> Not so great decisions, like going to a harem. But even so, yeah, like, you know, I survived it. So it has been all, uh, as Nora Ephron says, all copy. And great copy for those of you who haven't read Some Girls yet. Wow, what a great book. And I can't wait for it to be a movie. I've been waiting for it to be a movie ever since it came out, before it came out. Uh, well, fingers crossed. Right. It's happening. So right. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> These things are sometimes a long time in the making. Yeah, no kidding. It should be happening. No kidding, no kidding. Um, but I want to hear about Paul's writing as well. Well, right now, Paul is working on a wonderful stage musical with uh, Guillermo del Toro and Gustavo Santaolalla. We're, we're taking Pan's Labyrinth, Guillermo del Toro's dark adult fairy tale, to the stage. So that's what I'm working on right now. And, and Oh, uh, wow. That sounds fantastic. An I'm writing the lyrics. The music is by Gustavo Santaolalla. Gustavo is... Uh, he won the Oscar two years in a row for best uh, motion picture score. He scored Brokeback Mountain, and then the year wow. after that, he scored Bevel. Uh, his score for Motorcycle Diaries is one of my favorites. He's just a brilliant, brilliant composer, an Argentinian, and uh, it was Guillermo de Toro's idea to put us together, and it's just it's a, a fantastic story. It's a beautiful, beautiful tale, a dark tale, and I love writing for the villain. Uh, now, Polly, did that, that come from the album of the year with Daft Punk that you received? No, no, there was no. There is a connection between Guillermo del Toro and Daft Punk. And, I thought there and, was. 
Yeah, it's interesting because in 1974, I made a movie that even my family didn't go see called Phantom of the Paradise. It was one <laughs> that was of the, scary. You know, one of the best kept secrets <laughs> in Hollywood. It was like... I totally I remember that it. movie. Oh, my God. Really wonderful. Well, I was... You know, I wrote this all the songs for it, and I played Swan, the evil film producer who's, uh, you know, the, basically <laughs> the, the devil in it. And it just, you know, it kind of, it was a hit in only two cities in the world, Winnipeg, Canada, and Paris. This is 1974, and it goes away, so you go, like, you know, what I've learned is don't write something off as a failure too quickly, because cut to almost like 40 years later, and when I was in Mexico City uh, in the 70s, or early 80s, a young Mexican boy came to me in his late teens with, an, with the album, with the Phantom of the Paradise album, and he asked me to sign it. He was wearing his dad's suit, and he borrowed his dad's car, and it was Guillermo del Toro. And he oh loved my gosh. Phantom of the Paradise. Daft Punk to, to Toman and Gimen, the, the two gentlemen who are the robots and the brilliant minds of Daft Punk, who choose anonymity just so they can be judged by their work and not their personal lives. These two fantastic guys met at a screening of Phantom of the Paradise in Paris. They saw it 20 times together. So 40 years later, after the movie comes out, three fans of the film reach out to me, and I wind up doing you know, writing two songs for the Random Access Memories, the Daft Punk album, sing on one of them, I wrote Beyond and I wrote Touch, I sing Touch, and at age 74, all of a sudden, I'm standing on stage accepting the Grammy for Album of the Year. That was and the I'm, most exciting moment. A, a, a musical with Guillermo del Toro. That's an outrageous story, I love it. You know, it's, so it's taking a while to get your movie made. Have no fear. Sometimes <laughs> the big amigo knows exactly what he's doing. And well, he always does, but it's these successes are worth waiting for. And the people you'll influence with the work you're doing today, you know, will pay off maybe 20 years from now, 30 years from now, well, of course, tomorrow as well. But don't be surprised if something yeah. you've written today or you, and Linda, please, the things you're doing today, don't be surprised if 20, 30 years from now, somebody you were just blown away by how successful and gigantic they are. They walk up to you and say, you know what? I loved Life's Charmed. I loved whatever I have had to work with you. Oh, God. Yeah, a few times famous people have said that that that, that book changed their lives, and, and I was just blown away. I, I just could not believe it. Yeah, believe it, believe yeah. it, believe it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I really it. think that failure is so, like, it's just so hard in the moment, like so impossibly hard, <laughs> like the rejection of it. No. I love, I love these stories. They like, I hang on to them mm. in my toughest moments. These stories of failure that is not really like, you don't know. You're not at the finish no. line yet. Tracy Jackson, who is my writing partner on Gratitude and Trust, says it, I think puts it really succinctly that there are no failures and that are mistakes are essentially our schoolyard. You know, she's absolutely right. The the opportunity to learn from those what looks like something that missed the mark. Yeah. You know, and right. and owning our mistakes is a huge opportunity to grow. Yeah, no kidding. Paul, you say it in Live Charmed that as a kid you were this little guy who was afraid of everyone, but you replaced that anxiety with thoughts of grandiosity and came to believe that one day you'd be so special that you would be able to do things no one else could do. <laughs> so uh, you that totally seems have. like it was a pretty good strategy. You know, I think that there was a very one specific incident that I talk about 
Whenever you know, I speak a lot. I speak about recovery anytime I'm asked to. I'll travel anywhere in the world to share the gift. We get to keep the miracle by giving it away. And one of the things I talk about was the fact that my dad was an alcoholic. My dad was a big sentimental drunk, and he'd get drunk and he'd pile us, you know, pile me into the car or my brother into the car, and we'd go off to show us something. And one morning, he got me up about four in the morning. It was raining horizontal, and was, you know, we were living in southern Ohio, and he was going to drive to see the Cleveland Indians play baseball. He was drunk and <laughs> was gone. So he's driving to Cleveland Indians to see the Cleveland Indians play baseball, and he drove to the wrong city. He drove to Cincinnati. It was like okay. it was a classic alcoholic mistake. We get there, and the place is empty, and he goes, well, we're going to get really good seats, you know, but but on the drive up, on the drive up, it's dark out, it's raining, and I remember sitting in the back seat. My dad's with his buddy in the front seat, passing a bottle back and forth, and the car is all over the road. Oh and I remember actually believing that my concentration would hold the car on the road. And I, you know, I look back on that, and I think that's the actual headwaters of my own grandiosity. I think hmm. that as a little boy, it is too much to ever open up your mind to the idea that the guy driving your car who is your daddy is so out of control that you're in danger. So what you do is you replace that horrific thought with something that is magical thinking at its most complete. I'm going to keep the car on the road by concentrating. And I think that on some sort of an unconscious level, it was a way to avoid the fear. And it was a way to start kind of giving myself an excuse to pull back, you know, from the world around me at the same time that I presented this sort of flat screen smile about everything was fine and stumbled through life until I found something else to replace magical thinking. And that was that was vodka and cocaine, which allowed me to keep this sort of magical thinking going and avoiding reality. You know? Paul, that's really interesting about this grandiosity that you had, because, you know, from my standpoint as somebody who was living in your home and watching you very, very carefully, I felt like I was watching a master at work in creativity, and I didn't know that I would go full-flung into writing, but I knew that I was a creative being, and so I was watching you. And I remember, you know, for as long as it would take you to eat one of my bowls of lentil soup, you would pound out a song that then would be nominated for a Grammy. And I would see you do it so quickly, or I would see, you know, somebody would ask you to go on television and do a roast, and you would be the MC, and I would watch you pound out jokes like in five minutes that were good enough to go on air. And you said something to me at that time, and I'm so grateful for your grandiosity because I think it's part of your magic. But you said to me, I, I remember asking you, I don't know if you remember this, but I said, Polly, how do you, how do you do it? Like, how do you bring through such brilliance? And you said, oh, it's easy. I give my unconscious the assignments. I tell it what I need, and then I forget about it, and I go about my business, and then it just flies in. Now, do you think that's well, because, is that connected to the grandiosity? What is that? How did you know to no, do no, that? No, no, the grandiosity is thinking that I can sit there and, and squeeze it out of me. That's grandiosity. Okay. The grandiosity mm. is, is I dip into what I'm really feeling, say something honest and show it to the world, and they respond. And my reaction to the success is an ego-driven moment where I go, well, I can do that all the time and sit down there and get in my head and start writing brilliant shit that nobody's ever going to connect with because <laughs> it's not real. So mm. the grandiosity is the post-success of just getting out of the way. Here's what I found out in early sobriety. I found out that what worked for me in recovery was the one thing that had been working for me in my writing, and I could now really, really focus on that and just do it. I'll give you the first example. 
and I think this is what you're talking about, writing the song. Mm-hmm. The first job I got when I was in Newly Silver was to write the words and music to uh, the Muppet Christmas yep. Carol. Perfect, perfect job for me. It's about <laughs> a man's spiritual awakenings. I mean, I was screwed. I mean, no, I hadn't mm-hmm. been mean, no, I had, and I, I had been generous, and I had been loving, and I would, you know, I had a few little faults, like trying to screw everybody else's wife and stuff like that, but, you know, <laughs> but basically I was not a really bad guy, you know. But the fact is that here I was to write these songs, you know, for a Disney film with the Muppets. And it wasn't something that we'd actually thought about doing, but they wanted the first number to be about Scrooge. They wanted it to yep. be Scrooge's I Am song. And what you were going to uh-huh. see was you're going to see the doors open, and you see Michael Caine's feet as Scrooge, and he's walking through the mud and splashing the water and the snow. And as he goes by, the little creatures they seem to get colder as he passes. So I went out. I took my little tape recorder and a piece of paper and a pencil, and I'd read the book. I'd read Dickens' original. I'd read the script. I knew what the song needed to be about. I went out and I sat out in the park. I sat down. And I basically said, Big Amigo, this, this needs to be, you know what this song needs to be about? You know, all these amazing forces up there somewhere are in, in and out, around me and within me. Let me know when you have an idea. And I picked up a Lawrence Block mystery, a really bloody mystery, and started reading it. And about three pages in, I set it down, not thinking about what I was supposed to do. I set the book down, and I went, okay. You see his feet, he's walking. When a cold wind blows, it chills you, chills you to the bone. But there's nothing in nature that freezes your heart like years of being alone. I went, wow, it's not bad, you guys. It makes you with indifference like a lady paints with rouge. And the worst and the worst, the most hated and cursed is the one that we call Scrooge. Oh, there goes Mr. Humbug. There goes Mr. Grimm. If they gave a prize for being mean, the winner would be him. And it poured out of me. I couldn't write it down fast enough. I had no conscious connection to the writing process beyond the fact that my unconscious, just as... You try to remember a name, and everybody listening can relate to this. I'm going to prove to everybody in your audience that they are creative and that they have the capacity to do things they haven't even begun to think about trying. Mm-hmm. You're trying to remember a name, folks. You love that movie. What was the name of the star in it? You can't think of his name. He's been your favorite for your entire goddamn life. Why can't I remember his name? All of a sudden, you start thinking about something else. You're doing the dishes. You're in the shower. You're, yep. you're laying in bed in the middle of the night, and boom, it pops to the surface. Who did that work? Who went through all those filing cabinets up there looking for the name? And you went, oh, my God, Arthur Honeycutt, or whatever the hell name is. That magical, mystical power. So when you sit down to do work, and this is my wrap-up to this thing. There's a wonderful composer named Richard Bellis, who is a friend of mine. He's also on the ASCAP Board of Directors. And he says that many times we mistake procrastination for percolation. It's not procrastinating. Mm. You get a job to do, you avoid it, you avoid it, you avoid it. All of a sudden, you've got four hours and a half to turn it in. You sit down. It pours out of you. Why? What's been happening? It's been percolating. Those guys upstairs have been doing the work. So true. So true. Um, I'm curious to know from both of you if you have any rituals or anything around your creative or routine or anything to kind of facilitate those spirits, those muses, to facilitate their work for them? Mm, go ahead. <laughs> Me? You first. You first. <laughs> well, when I'm on a deadline, it's very easy. I just show up at the same time every day, and I completely trust my unconscious. I think I got that from Polly, and it comes. And 
my deadlines are easy and they always happen. That doesn't mean I'm not working my ass off and it doesn't mean I'm getting enough sleep, but pretty much it's an easy process. But that's because I've got agents and editors and maybe clients looking over my shoulder and I've pretty painstakingly outlined doable steps. And all of this is assuming that I haven't just found out about my husband having an affair, at which point my deadlines, I had two of them at that point, are smash and totally late. But on my own time, when I don't have a deadline and I'm trying just to give myself all the time in the world to do the best work I can and to do the healing work that I need to do at the same time, I try to show up in the morning before I do anything else. So I pay myself with my own creativity first. And then it's about prayer. Just get on my knees and say, use me. What do you want me to say? What's next? Yep, yep. You know, a big help for me was when I, you know, I had that little kind of a burst with the Muppet movie. And then the passion was kind of gone. I thought, you know what? And people would ask me, are you writing? And I was like, no. When I fall in love with it again, if I fall in love with it again, I'll start writing. I went to UCLA and got my certification as a drug and alcohol counselor. And I wanted to just work around recovery until it came back to me. And when it did start to, you know, kind of roll back in at the very, maybe a few months before that, I tried. And I felt very blocked. And the one thing that I have to say helped is I picked up a copy of The Artist's Way. And mm. those morning pages are magical. And I think that the morning pages were a big part of my kind of connecting with the fact that, you know, well, you don't need to work at this, Paulie. You need to play at it. Just mm-hmm. start scribbling. Make a clown face. Describe it. Start scribbling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm literally I'm sitting here writing a note to myself. You don't have to work at it. You can play at it. Mm. Yep. So good. But, you know, as Linda says, the fact is you've got to get your butt in the chair. You know, you've got mm-hmm. to. You have to, you know, and... and Jillian's great at that. Jillian has a very good discipline, girl. Do you? Yeah. You know, I do. And, like, I've always been somebody who is very hard-lying about that. Like, just, you know, they'll know where to find you. The muses will know where to find you. Sit down. Same place all the time. And lately, uh, and then I just hit a really stuck spot. And then we were traveling. We were in 42 cities. And you adopted another kid. You adopted another kid. It was like all of a sudden this year my life exploded. And then when I got back, I just kind of like went back to my old routine. It didn't feel, it just hasn't felt quite right. So I've been trying to explore some different stuff lately. I've been like, what if I give myself permission to just go to a museum? What if I go and like listen to some new music and discover some new things that are like, not in my usual medium. Like, what if I go paint a painting or something and, like, release myself from this obligation to, like, produce work? And I think that that's sort of hard to do. Like, once you start, like, publishing books and you have this career that, for me, I worked for for many years, and then I have felt locked into it in a way that wasn't making sense. So, anyway, that's why I'm asking. I'm just, like feeling, I don't know, like a spirit of curiosity around process right now. Well, you're a performer as well. Have you done any, you haven't done any one-woman shows in a while. I have not. You know, I I felt a little bit like when I did that, it was done for me. I mean, I still enjoy live storytelling and I enjoy being up on a stage, but I don't know. I think maybe... Also, particularly at this time in my life with the two little kids. Yeah, yeah. That it's, you know, I just like, I don't want to be doing something that I'm 
totally away from them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for too long. Mm-hmm. So that's not to say I'll never do another one. <laughs> yes, yes. But, uh, Julian, can I ask you a question? My wife, Mariana, has uh, competed and won the moth as well, and she produces a, a series in Long Beach. We live in Long Beach, California, or Huntington Beach now, but Long Beach searches for the greatest storytellers, and she's just totally fascinated with the whole world of storytelling, and it began, I think, for her with the moth and all. Can you talk a little bit about that culture and that world? Because I went somewhere in Tennessee where I went to a great storytelling festival with Mariana, and it blew me away oh, about yeah. the brilliance of the story that were told there. I'd love to hear your thoughts about how you wound up in that world. Well, I always think that storytelling is like our primary way of creating meaning, you know, taking all these chaotic events of our life and it becomes a narrative and it starts to make sense and we're able to, I think, find some purpose in even the darkest parts of our personal narratives. And so I know that for me, that was really important. It was important to me both artistically to learn how to do that, to like write a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And how I did that, really the most effective school for that, for me, was the moth, was doing the live storytelling because, and I think probably as a songwriter, like this is even more true. If you have, you have three and a half minutes or you have, you know, 10 minutes, then you're really forced to say, like, what is this about? What is the arc and how efficiently can I convey it? But I'm not a songwriter, so I don't know if that translates. Do you feel like there's an overlap? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of the reason why I would even ask the question, because I'm just fascinated by the art form, because it has this deep, deep history. And yet, as I watch storytellers, you get this sense of improvisation, you know, that is so spellbinding, and yet there, there's structure. I mean, so it's it's as if you've combined, you know, as if you've compressed the entire process of writing the song and singing it down to these moments on stage because, you know, I've heard a couple of great stories told two or three times, and they're always a little different. And it, it's mm-hmm. just, I think, that, you know, you know, we sign our work as songwriters and they're done, but are they? You know, I think... Maybe it's that fluidity of storytelling that that a story will change as you tell a lot. But mm-hmm. the best part of being on stage for me is not really singing the songs. It's telling the stories before and after them and, you know, kind of having that conversational connection to the audience. But I just think it's fascinating. And I know you have a great history and with that. And the begin, I think probably the beginnings of your success. I don't know when you did the moth the first time, but I think it's connected to to your own creativity. And I just wanted to jabber at you about it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love storytelling. And true life storytelling was one of the things for me as somebody who has a bit of an outre past, you know, and that looks very different from my present. And I think that it would be easy to be in that position. And, you know, I mean, I'm not like a real big ashamed kind of person, but you know, there was a lot I just didn't talk about for a long time. It wasn't like, yeah. oh, I wasn't lying about it. I wasn't like, oh, no, I wasn't in a harem when I was a teenager. Just like, it doesn't come up unless you bring, unless you bring it up. <laughs> it's nice to meet you. Oh, by the way, did I ever tell you? 
Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, now assaulted. it comes up. Yeah. <laughs> now when people are like, what's your book about? I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah. the big icebreaker at the school parties. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think but like the, the moth and the other storytellers who came before me gave me a sense of permission. And like a sense of being able to reclaim some of that stuff and really like stand in my truth and be like, you know what, this is what happens. And actually it makes me special and it's cool. And it's not, you know, I I don't need to just be like every other mom at Gymboree. And P.S., they all have their stories too. Yeah, P.S. (laughs) (laughs) That they're not talking about. I think it's so similar to what's happening with the popularity of TED. I was reading the other day that the TED Talks have been downloaded over a billion times. And I think hearing people tell stories live has become the new campfire. And Mm -hmm. with the magic of the Internet, we can hear all these stories so quickly. I mean, I must have listened to three of them yesterday. And when I was driving home from Carmel last weekend, I just had it on TED.com, and I probably listened to 12 TED Talks on the way home, and it's just fun. You know, people are either obsessed with TED or they don't know anything about it, and people are either obsessed with Moth or they haven't heard of it, but I think it's so similar. We're craving authentic stories, and in my opinion, those are two of the best places to get them. Um, Paul, I want to do a quick intermission. Okay, also, I'll be, I'm going to wait here while you do it. <laughs> no, you're... <laughs> <laughs> that was quick. No, you're la, part la, of it. La, 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 la. No, you're part of it. Okay, so. Okay, number. <laughs> oh my God, I could say something really funny about you and your little songs. Okay, number one. When you're composing, are you on a computer or old school pen and paper in it? I'm in my head, and uh, I use a computer to write down because I use Siri, and incidentally, Siri hates me. You know, so I'll write something, I'll take it and Siri will write down something that you could get thrown in jail for if you send it to your daughter. I mean, right? it's, just, it's, just, it's just so you go back and clean it up really quickly. But, you know, it, it depends on what I'm working on. I mean, yeah. with Pan's Labyrinth, I'm writing lyrics to these and amazing, gorgeous melodies of, of Gustavo's, you know, and I'll listen to the music two or three times, listening to it over and over and over again, and the lyrics just begin to come out, and I find that it's easier for me if I can type them, I can then cut and paste, move them around, and I'll yeah. play with it and all, but, you know, even when I write words and music myself, I find that what probably happens in those cases is that most of it is in my head. I'll find something to get it done, get the words down, and the last thing I do is I'll go to the piano and find some chords, which is like looking for the lost gold mine of this. <laughs> I hear it in my head, but it's obviously not an E-A-D, like the last night things you wrote. So wait a minute, find the chord. There it is, there it is. You know. And then I go over and I record it with Chris Caswell, who's been my music director since he was my height, you know, and it sounds like it was written by a grown-up when he plays it. Okay, which meant more? Okay, this is rapid fire. Which meant more, Grammy, Oscar, Golden Globe? Well, you know, winning the Oscar is spectacular because you know, you walk up on that stage, and you, you know, and this was 1976. So you, you know, you walk up on that stage. This was I've been nominated six times. So I think this was my third time. Did Jane Fonda give it to you? No, it was. It was uh, Neil Diamond gave it to oh, that's right. Barbara, oh, wow. Barbara and I. So Neil Diamond announces the winner. Barbara has been on stage singing Evergreen anyway, so she comes from the wings. Oh, I come from the audience. I give her a hug. We each are given our Oscar. I turn and look at the audience, 
and I go, oh my God, there's Kirk Douglas, there's Gregory Peck, there's Anthony, oh my God, look at this, oh, there's Jane Fonda, there's Bubba, and you just go, blah, 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 blah. And what I said was I was going to thank all the little people, then I remembered I am the little people. So. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that was there was a so lot of classic. truth in that. I think part of my success, you know, I did the Tonight Show 48 times. I joked that I remember six, but I think part of the success, <laughs> my success was that the audience kind of was pulling for me. They were going, you know, look at this old guy. I mean, I'm, I was, you know, orphaned trailer trash back in Ohio at age 13. It was shipped off to live with an aunt and uncle, you know, that were, you know, it was just it was a horrific experience. I went to nine schools by the time I was in the ninth grade, and all of a sudden I'm on that stage, you know, or on the sitting there with Johnny, and it's like it was, you know, people were really kind. People celebrated my successes, no matter how. Yeah. I mean, I got a little full of self, a little arrogant, a little dead-eyed there at the end. If you look at the movie Paul Williams Still Alive, there's footage of me in the hosting the Merv Griffin show that I find still almost impossible to watch because yeah. I had no idea. I'd turned into such a little asshole. You were, you know? pre you were pretty out of it, but you've made up for it. Okay, wait, this brings up, because you said Johnny Carson. One of my Q&As was Johnny Carson or Oprah, yeah. which you were recently on for Super Soul Sunday. Oh, uh, well, you know, it's like you can't choose between the Oscar and the Grammy. You know, the Oscar was then, the Grammy is now, and my kids, Cole and Sarah, were in the audience one Oh, you know, my God. When, uh, when that happened. And with, with John, Johnny was then, Johnny gave me my career. Johnny gave me an audience. And Oprah, I mean, my God, I just want to have a good cry on her. I want to crawl into her lap and have a good cry. <laughs> it was like, pick me up and love me, Mommy. First of all, what a gift. <laughs> I mean, I've got to hand it over to, to Tracy Jackson because her, yeah. Tracy heard me speak. I said that my choo-choo runs on the twin rails of gratitude and trust. And Tracy loved it, what the program, what recovery had done for some of her close, close friends. And she'd seen me be a little, a little arrogant little prick when I met her years and years and years ago and then turned into somebody that wasn't half bad. And she said, there's a book there. Let's write the book. And she sat in the chair for seven hours and I'd do, do about three and then I'd be saying, let's go eat. Come on, let's go eat. Come on, yeah. let's go eat. Your attention she'd say, no, you're going to stay in that chair. And if I leave, she'd stay for another four hours. And the next thing you know, the book came out and the date the book was published, we did Super Soul Sunday. And it was just, it was a high point. I will, I will never, ever forget that day. I will never forget, you know, there is an elegance to kindness that is, Probably as gorgeous an example as you will ever find of that would have to be Miss Winfrey. And yeah. mm. she is the true elegance of kindness mixed in with a batch of wisdom that is impossible to measure. It's true. When I met her, it was a couple of years ago. Polly, right, I think I texted you from there. It was like right after, right before you were on, the week before you were on. I literally fell into her bosoms like she was like a long lost family member. Like mama, mama, <laughs> just like you said. And I fell into them and then I just really, I couldn't really talk and I didn't really care. I just wanted to be held. <laughs> it was the same yeah. ridiculousness. Yeah. Okay, one more. Um, New York Times bestseller, album of the year, or songwriter Hall of Fame? Well, songwriter Hall of Fame is, is a collection of, of being recognized by my peers for the work that I've done or the gifts I've been given and, and have, have found a way to share. The longer I'm alive, the, the more names I want to put on all of it, and a lot of them I don't know. You sit down and, and these ideas come to you, or you sit down with a guy like Roger Nichols, who wrote the most amazing melodies that, to the songs that, that were my first hits. We've only just begun, Rainy Days and Mondays, I Won't Last a Day Without You, of... Uh, Kenny Asher, who I wrote You and Me Against the World with, and most of yeah. the songs for A Star is Born. Yeah, yeah, I wrote some alone, old-fashioned love song or whatever, but 
there were a lot of guys that I wrote with, and to be honored with the, the Songwriter Hall of Fame was huge and all. Grammy, I mean, the album of the year two years ago was like, give me a break. It was 74 just, years I wrote, old. I mean, I, 74 years old, I wrote, wrote two songs on the album, and I sing one, but there was something really remarkably special about that night, and that was the, all those great gay wed- the weddings, oh, you know, yeah. the combination of, of every possible combination and, and the performance of the song, Same Love, which was so touching. In my speech, when I got up to, to say the speech, my so three, I was asked by Daft Punk to make the acceptance speech. We won. And I said, you know, when I was drinking and using, I used to see things that weren't there, and it scared me. And so I had to get sober. And then I got sober, and a couple robots asked me if I wanted to make an album. <laughs> but after that, I said, well, I just got a message from the robots, and they wanted me to mention that the Grammys have never been more elegant or beautiful or, or sweet or generous or loving than with these marriages, you know. And what people didn't realize is that the day before my daughter had told me she was going to ask her partner to marry her. For the universe to put that together, you know, where the day before, what was a a huge thing in my life to win the Grammy, be one of the winners of the Grammy for album of the year, the only thing that was bigger than that was to make a statement about same love on the day after my daughter told me that. And it's just... You know, it's a deeply, deeply personal story, and it was an amazing opportunity, you know. And I hadn't thought of it or planned it. It just came out, you know. It was so stunning. So stunning. Yeah. Do you feel like, do you want to, is there another book in you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I I haven't identified whether it's paintings or, or music or books or whatever, but it's a celebration, and it's a celebration of creativity and uh it's built on this mountain of gratitude that I've amassed in the last 26 years of my recovery and just the absolute pure love of the world around me, even in its most broken stage as it is right now. I mean, it's so, so frightening, you know, the heartache and the evil and the, the crap that is going on all around us. But in the midst of all that, I'm aware of the intensity of the gift we've all been given in our, in, in have, being able to walk around and breathe and stare at the trees and all this good stuff. My brother is quite ill right now, and we're having conversations that are the most meaningful of our lives. So I think that as I grow older, the heart seems to expand, and you're able to go from a thimble full of love to a magnificent vet that continues to grow and expand with the opportunity to love and be loved. Oh, that's so beautiful. Well, and it makes sense for the guy who wrote the love songs of the 70s. I know you call them the most codependent love songs of the 70s. Codependent <laughs> <laughs> um, anthems, exactly. The anthems. But, Paul, I, I wanna, before we go, I want to talk about you being the president and chairman of ASCAP, which we mentioned earlier. This is the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers. And I'd love yeah. to hear a little bit about you testifying before the judiciary in Washington, D.C., you know, to fight for artists' rights, especially since... Jillian is married to a songwriter. Well, you know, it's, I've been a member of ASCAP since 1972. ASCAP is a performing rights organization that licenses the music of, at this point, there's almost 590,000 members. And uh, we license the music of everyone from Cole Porter and the Gershwins to through uh, Beyonce and Jay-Z and Paul McCartney and all these brilliant people's music. Anytime you hear music in any format, whether it's on the radio, cable, online, whatever, Pandora, Spotify, it's licensed by ASCAP and BMI, and those are the two largest organizations. We operate under a consent degree, which is a contract with the government 
that is way, way out of date. It was established in 1941, and it has not been updated since before the uh, iPod was on the marketplace. So it's horribly out of date. And with that, in the world of streaming, it's almost impossible for young writers to be fairly compensated for their music. Mm-hmm. So what I'm doing and what I've had the great opportunity to do, I was elected president and chairman of the was elected to the board in 2001. I was elected president in 2009. And I, you know, you sit down in front of a congressional hearing or on the Senate side. I've spoken on the Senate side about our relations with our, our IP relations and the problems there with Russia. And I sat down with the gentleman from Pandora sitting right next to me and said, you know what, we're $90 for a million streams, it isn't fair. You've got Whoa. to do something for us. Mm-hmm. So I'm passionate about two things. First of all, my recovery. And I'm passionate about music creators' rights. Because while you and I are talking, Linda, Jillian, somewhere there's a woman riding on an electric keyboard with headphones so she doesn't wake the baby in the next room. And oh, she yeah. has... Mm-hmm. A musical equivalent of a life charm or, you know, that hope and that heartache of her daily life is piled into a song. And you know what? She might get lucky and somebody might hear it and say it needs to be recorded and the world might relate to it. That happens as it happened to the three of us. Yeah. She deserves a chance to put food on the table and gas in the car with those performance royalties. So I love my life. I love the jobs I get to do. And none of it feels like work. Travel is a little like work once in a while. <laughs> Keeping track of what time zone I'm in is it's difficult once in a while. <laughs> are but, you, you know, uh, I are love you it. And I'm off, to, I'm off to Beijing and I'm off to Singapore and London within the next month. So, so I'll keep doing the work as long as they ask me to. And it's been a real oasis to sit down and, and talk to the two of you. And, and Linda, you know your family and you always will be. Ditto. Ditto. Well, thank you so much, Paul. And this is a pleasure and totally inspiring for me. And very helpful. I love my chances with Weezer, though. Let's, let's get to the heart of the matter. You know, when can I sit down and write a song with Scott? Or you. <laughs> okay. Whenever you get back from Beijing, come on over. Okay. <laughs> we'll bring the <laughs> chips and dip. Get <laughs> Linda to have us all over for dinner. More. That would be perfect. Oh, my yeah. God, Polly, remember uh, how many years ago, my God, I wanted to introduce you to Lisa Gibbons, and I'm making pizzas, and I'm cleaning. I'm ignoring the pizzas. I take it back because it's Paul and your ex-wife, and it was Lisa and her now ex-husband, and I was so excited you guys were going to meet because I loved you both so much, and I'm cleaning the house basically like a psycho person. I'm seriously taking a toothbrush <laughs> to the window pane. I've been cleaning the house for like eight hours. I haven't even showered. You guys come, you and your wife then, come to the house, and your wife was a big cook, right? And she's like Martha Stewart, cookbook cook, and she's watching me, and I'm putting the pizza crust in the oven, and I'm like so out of time that I'm throwing the mushrooms into the oven, (laughs) and they're not even hitting the pizza. And she goes, oh, my God, Linda, what the hell are you doing? And I said, I don't care. So Lisa shows up, and as I remember it, Paul, you tell me if I'm wrong, but as I remember it, I don't even think we had a dining room table. We sat on the floor and watched Lisa on Entertainment Tonight. Lisa was watching herself, and you're just making polite conversation with her, and I was just an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you always do the, the best of the most interesting people, and Lisa is just a charmer, too, so you have to give her my love as well. Oh, my God, I will. And I'm going to read yeah. something from the end of my book about you, Paul, before we close, but 
I want to say, Jillian, I just love you so much. I'm so glad to put the two of you guys together. I can't wait till we do this live and in person. And I know you're so swamped. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being here, Jillian. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Oh, my goodness. So much fun. All right, so this is the last paragraph, Polly, from Life's Charmed, and this is about you. So I just want to wrap up with this because it just means so much to me. I just found it again today. So one of the greatest lessons for me surrounding this friendship is that I never assume that I know where a seemingly dead-end job may lead. I pray that if my son ever ends up broke and missing home in some big city, that he will be so lucky to meet an angel like Paul. It seems too good to be true to have happened at all, much less to happen again. But angels come in all shapes and sizes, and chances are there are more than a few out there. If you find one, just don't expect him or her to be so talented. Now that would be asking a lot, even of God. Wow. Beautiful. Wow. So beautiful. So lovely. That's a really, really touching tribute to your friendship. Mm. Oh, and speaking of God, I should say one last thing. Polly, you're a golfer. One of the other icons I interviewed for our book was Arnold Palmer, who died yesterday. Oh, so, I know. I tweeted, you know, the, and, right? and an Instagram picture of, of Arnie and, and myself, and it was it was at a dinner, and I wrote on the my Instagram account with the picture. I said, you know, that I had once in a while you get to have dinner with a legend. Right. Everybody wanted a picture with Arnold Palmer. Everybody. And everybody loved Arnold Palmer. So, of course, I turned to him and I said, Arnie, I would like a picture, but I want it to look like you're just annoying the shit out of me. I want it to be like this. <laughs> <laughs> and he roared, he leaned back and he laughed. He went, oh, my God, that's perfect. I'd love to. So he t- I'm trying to take a bite of food and he's pulling on my arm. And laughing his ass off, you know. It's this really terrible lighting and everything, but it's such an amazing moment. He was just the heart of kindness. Oh my god! uh, You know, he he was just so special. So if you check it out, it's on. uh, It's hilarious. My my Instagram account is Polylama Two. You know. And you know what's funny about that, Polly? When I first got the deal for Life's Charms, one of the executives over at HCI was obsessed with golf and obsessed with Arnie and said, do you think it would be possible if you could get a picture for me? So I called over to his office and he said, sure, sure. What do you want me to say on the picture? And I said, something really obnoxious, something like, hey, you hack. (laughs) (laughs) And he goes, I couldn't do that. And so then he wrote something really, really sweet. So apparently you're the only one who could get him to do that. Oh, <laughs> check out the it's it's also on, it, but it, it's the, the story and the picture are on my Instagram account, you know. So Pauli Lama too, and uh, he was remarkable. Lived a great full life. Mm, Gave I love to the you world, guys to the very end last day. Love you as well. Bye bye, guys. Oh, bye. All right. Good luck with the rest of your tour. Hope to see you soon. <laughs> bye bye, sweetheart. Hey, bye-bye. thanks, you guys. God, that interview made me happy. Thank you so much for allowing me to share it with you. There are a few things I want to mention before we close. The first is that you can find Jillian Lauren and her stunning blog on life, love, creativity, and adoption over at JillianLauren.com. To hear all the latest scoop on Paul, go to PaulWilliamsOfficial.com. And to read the 20-plus page interview we talked about during our chat, Lives Charmed is still in print. And does include some of those details on giving birth to my son in his guest bedroom, which I forgot to elaborate on. At any rate, big, big thanks to those of you who've already left us five-star comments on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher. 
If you love the show and haven't yet had a chance to leave us a comment, they are always appreciated. Lastly, for info on joining me at one of my writing retreats in beautiful Carmel-by-the-Sea, or to learn of other ways I can support you on your writing journey, head over to beautifulwriterspodcast.com or bookmama.com. Until next time, thank you, thank you, and write on. Write on.